Let's turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. The second of our series of messages on trees in the Bible. Last Lord's Day evening, we considered from Genesis chapter 2 and then from as well into chapter 3 the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Genesis chapter 6. We'll read all of chapter 6. I believe in a literal flood. I believe that the whole earth was covered with water. That it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And that uh, all the, but that which was in the ark perished and died. In our day and age, it almost becomes a prerequisite as a minister preaches on the flood to set forth what he believes about it. For many, accept it only as a local flood, not a worldwide one. Uh, some believe it's only a symbolic act that is taking place here that God never did actually send the kind of flood that uh, is described in Genesis 6, 7, Eight and nine. And so uh, I, I take just those few moments to let you know from where I come in understanding that, even as uh, I come to the story of creation with that same literal understanding of what God has done. Genesis 6 When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and without with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. 
make a room for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Thus far the reading of God's word this evening. Let's again bow in prayer. Father God, thank you that you have made yourself known through your word, even as we read about your covenant with mankind, your creation. You are the faithful one. You are the unchanging one. Lord, may we receive your words tonight and apply them in our heart. But most of all, Lord, may we go forth with a compassion for a broken world. And as your witnesses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So we want to look at three things from this passage tonight. First of all, the reason for the ark. Secondly, the materials for the ark. And thirdly, the sign of the ark. What is God saying to us? What is God communicating to us through this ark that he commands Noah to make? First of all, the reason for it. Well, one, right, is it's God's punishment. There needs to be an ark because God is about to punish the earth. There is going to be a literal destruction of water. But we need to be reminded of something. While I gave that claimer at the, the beginning, before reading the passage, we also have to understand something else. And that's the fact that the flood has drastically affected the landscape of this world. We have to be careful that we do not assume that that which we see in the world today is that which existed prior to the flood. It would indeed be a grave mistake for us to simply say, well, Mount Everest was there when the flood started. I don't know that. You don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible speaks of the tallest mountains of that day, of that time being covered. But when one reads what is unleashed upon this earth, the fury that God brings upon this earth, one could certainly not walk away from those passages in Genesis 7 and 8 without understanding how much has changed in terms 
of the landscape of the earth. Think of the depth in which we find some of these fossils. Fossils that you and I say were buried in the flood. But think of the amount of earth that it takes to cover all of that. Certainly, if they were buried, they were walking upon the earth at one time. All that earth is now upon them. The landscape of this earth has changed. It would also be a mistake for us to assume that everything that we see as far as trees and plants, animals and birds, that exist today existed in the same form, in the same way they did prior to the flood. Certainly, the flood alters life. It alters the landscape. We know that after the flood, God declares, okay, that's it. No more of these long ages. It alters the length of man's life. It changes that which God had created and that which God had made. So is it this earth still that which God had made? Is it still the materials? Of course it is. God called it into existence. He called water into existence. He called soil into existence. He calls animals and birds and fish. He creates man as a unique character. But that flood is going to devastate that created world. So much so that the only living beings that remain are going to be those that are upon the ark. God is coming and he's doing all of this because of sin. Violence has filled the earth. Man has become corrupt. Even those who should know better, the sons of God, the descendants of the godly line, the descendants who fall within that promise line, have forgotten who they are and have begun to intermarry with the children of Cain. They've become corrupt. Filled with violence. There is, there is no righteous thought within them. Except one note. Noah. I want you to note. It doesn't say his wife or his sons or his son's wives were righteous in his sight. Only Noah is the one who is noted. Is the one who is righteous in the eyes of God. Now, how is God going to save? How is God going to protect this righteous man? This believing man? Here comes the reason for the ark. It's God's means of keeping covenant. God's made a promise. Genesis 3.15. That's where there's going to be a descendant who is going to come and who's going to crush the serpent. Has that happened by the time we get to Genesis 6? 
No, God's got a promise outstanding. God will keep his promise. What did we sing? He is faithful. He is faithful. Hallelujah. God is going to keep covenant. That covenant promise that is made. Back there in Genesis 3.15. That's going to be renewed to Noah. That's going to be renewed to Abraham. That's going to be renewed at Sinai. That is going to become the new covenant as we've been looking at in Hebrews. That covenant of grace. I will send one to crush the dragon. I will provide the means of salvation. Could God have saved Noah in some other way? Well, of course, he's God. Right? Could God have just lifted Noah up and held him in the sky for a period of time while he destroyed the earth? Sure, he could have done that. Could God have stuck him in a cave, put a big rock in front of it, and sealed the rock? Could have done it that way. So it's interesting, isn't it? When you start thinking about, could God have done it other ways? Sure, but he didn't. He chose to save Noah in an ark. By the means of the ark. I wonder if the means has a message for us. I wonder if the means by which he chooses to save Noah in the midst of this ungodly society has a message to you and I even tonight. Well, maybe we need to stop and first of all consider what were the materials of the ark. You know, oftentimes when, and, and I've looked back through the sermons I've done on, on the ark, and maybe some of you are this story, and maybe some of you even have notes in the margins of your Bibles. Okay, there's, there's things that, that you can certainly look at this in this story, right? There's the size of the ark. That's something that always captivates people. You, you could f- talk about the floor plans, the three decks. If you've been down to... Uh, the Creation Museum and visited the ark. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to look at and see and contemplate. Of how that, that might have functioned and how it might have worked. Given the, the square footage that you're actually dealing with. Or the door. What a, what, what a thing to look at in this story, right? Put a door, right? And the whole, you know, you go inside and then the Lord shuts the door behind him. Or the windows and how they come into play at the end of the flood with, with the birds being let out. Let me ask you a question. What materials was Noah to use to build the ark? I don't think we've, you know, I don't think we think about this very often. It isn't a long list. There's only two. There's only two things. No, I want you to build an ark. Here's what I want you to use. I want you to use gopher wood. That's what I want you to use. Build it. Use gopher wood. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
Okay, so we'll get rid of attempted humor by Pastor Bob first. They didn't call it gopher wood because Noah kept saying to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, gopher wood, go for more wood. I need more wood, go for it, right? right? We, we, it, it, it was an attempt, right? It's a type of wood, but you know what? We don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. You want to know something even more unique? This is the only place in the entire Bible that this kind of wood is mentioned. The only place this Hebrew word is used. It is a single, solitary reference to a specific wood that Noah was to use. Interestingly, when you look into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the term, or they've, they've translated it as squared beams. So if you have a, a, a version of the Bible that used the Septuagint as a means of translating into the English, you're probably going, Bob, what do you mean go for what it says? Squared beams. Because that's the way the Greek translates the Hebrew. The Vulgate, the Latin, translated as planed planks. So in Latin, the, the word that's used here, they've decided means planed planks. Squared beams. Gopher wood. We have no clue what it is. I find that in itself interesting. Make it out of wood. Make it out of gopher wood. And Noah knows exactly what that means. How do I know that? Because the last verse. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He made the ark out of this gopher wood. Whatever that wood is. One must probably assume it's sturdy. One must assume it's pretty durable. One would have to make some assumption that it would hold up under a great deal of pressure. Scholars believe it was probably some type of cypress. But we're only trying to identify something that is, in a sense, unidentifiable. I just want you to note, God used a single, solitary type of wood to save Noah and his family. And Noah knew what that wood was. What's the second ingredient? What's the second thing? Make a room, verse 14, for yourself of gopher wood. Make rooms in it, in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. That's the only other material, wood and pitch. So what's pitch? What is that? What, what, what you know, if you, somebody said, so what's pitch? Well, let me give an attempt at this, okay? For those who are not geologists, which would probably be just about all of us here tonight, 
Pitch is a black glue-like substance that is left behind when coal tar is heated or distilled. It belongs to the same family of substances as asphalt or bitumen. Today, it is largely produced by heating coal. Most modern geologists know of other sources of it. However, coal tar and petroleum are not the only source for pitch. Anyone who takes the time to consult a reasonable dictionary of geology will find that pitch can be extracted by distilling or heating wood. In fact, prior to the rise of petroleum and coal industries, this was exactly how pitch was made. For at least a thousand years, the pitch-making industry in Europe flourished. It was the pitch from this industry which assisted in the construction of those great wooden sailing ships which figured so predominantly in European history. Pitch-making was a skilled trade, and many European surnames bear testimony to that fact. In Polish, the word for pitch is smola. So somebody whose last name is Smolinski was somebody who was a pitch maker. In Germany, the word for pitch is tier. So a person whose last name is Tierman was a person whose family was involved in the making of pitch. The English have families whose names is Pitcher, Terrier, or Tarman, to mention a few. All these indicate that the trade of manufacturing pitch was extremely common throughout Europe. So how did they make pitch before the growth of petroleum and coal industries? The first step was to obtain resin from the pine trees. What did most scholars think that gopher wood might have been? Cypress, pine, hmm, that gummy stuff. You heat it up, you heat up the wood, and the stuff comes boiling out, and you mix it, and you got pitch. God used gopher wood and pitch as a means by which he's going to save Noah and his family from this devastating flood, from this judgment that he is about to unleash upon the sinful world. So what does this ark really point us to then? What, what, what is this account? Historical? Literal? Actual? Yes. But God is going through a lot of details here. When he could have chosen other ways by which Noah could have been saved. What's he telling us? I would say there's three things for us to pull away from this passage this evening as signs that God is giving to us in this story. First, of God's promise. He wants us to remember that he is a promise-keeping God. Because we have this message tonight, I don't have to preach on Hebrews 11, the section dealing with Noah. But let's read that from Hebrews chapter 11. 
Listen, listen to how it talks about Noah. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah. Now the question would be, if I were preaching through Hebrews 11, my question would be, faith in what? Right? Faith always has an object. What's the object of Noah's faith? Where were we this morning? Faith receives God's covenant promises. Noah believes God's covenant promise. He believes that God is going to send one who is going to crush the dragon. He believes the promise of God. And because he believes, because he has faith in God's promise, he does that which God commands. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. That eternal inheritance. He became an heir. And interesting how the author of Hebrews is winding this back in then. And how when we go back now to the story of the flood. By faith. Faith in God's covenant promises. Noah believed that God keeps his promises. He is faithful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hear that today. The church needs to hear that today. Your heart needs to hear that. My heart needs to hear. God keeps his promises. Not some, not part. He keeps all the promises he has made to you and to I. All the promises he has made to our children. That's what this true event of Genesis 6 reminds us of. It's a sign. As God is keeping his promise to Noah, God keeps his promise to you and I. There's another thing about this promise. The only place of safety is inside. This does Noah no good you see, to build an ark and stand on the outside of it. It does Noah no good to have all this factual information about how long it has to be, about how many decks it has to have, about the door, windows, it, about the animals that are to come, the food that is going to come, if he's just going to stand there and look at the ark. He needs to get in the wood. He needs to get inside of that. There is safety only in this symbol of covenant protection. This sign of God that he will keep his promises. 
I find it interesting that this wood is not some known entity. That God calls our attention to its singularity. Because I think of another piece of wood. Another singular piece of wood. And only in that is there safety. Only in that piece of wood is there protection. It does me no good to know the whole story. It does me no good to know everything that was said from that piece of wood. It does me no good to know all that that piece of wood can accomplish and do. I must be in the cross. In the cross. I must be in Christ. Standing outside and just knowing of God's covenant of grace does me no good. I must be in covenant. And the only way to be in covenant with him is through a singular, solitary piece of wood. The cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that saves. The only thing that protects. The only thing that guards. From what? From God's judgment. One cannot read Genesis 6 without thinking of the day and age in which we live. The thoughts of men's hearts only evil continually. Yes, there are the righteous Noahs who pray to God that in His mercy we are the righteous Noahs of our day. But the thoughts of men, you kind of wonder, did these people think of aborting their children? Did they think of that? Thoughts are only of violence continually. That which has been on display for us throughout this summer, throughout the fall, throughout these last weeks. What's the earth full of? Violence. One cannot think of this passage without thinking of the judgment of God. And that's not just Pastor Bob saying it. That's what God's word says. Turn with me. Okay? First of all, to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. When asked about the end, when asked when... He would come again. Listen to Jesus' answer. Starts for us at verse 36. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What will the judgment be like? Be just like the days of Noah. You in the piece of wood? You in the cross? You in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Turn with me to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, we'll pick it up at verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Are you in? The piece of wood. Go with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. It's after Hebrews, so if your Bible's getting a little worn at Hebrews, you'll be able to find 2 Peter easily. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the judgment of God. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God's judgment. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming forever since our fathers fell asleep? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately over this fact, overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the words of God, word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Perished. God's judgment. in the piece of wood that single solitary piece that can save only the cross only in Christ only with him as your mediator God's judgment but it's a sign of one more thing it's a sign of God's inclusion. It's a sign of that covenant of grace. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
1 Peter now, chapter 3. See, it wasn't just righteous Noah. It wasn't just believing Noah. It wasn't just Noah, the man of faith, who was in that ark. There were seven others. There were seven others. God graciously included them. Listen to what Peter says about that. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to go down to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may, may bring many of us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but, being, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed, to the saints in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. See, there's a sign here of this ark, right? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism. Hmm. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. What is the sign of this ark? It points us to God's gracious inclusion in baptism. Here's the mistake we often make. We equate that covenant and being in covenant is the same as election and salvation. It does not. Ishmael is included in the covenant. He's given the sign of the covenant, but he's not a believer. Esau is included in the covenant. He is given the sign of the covenant, but he is not a believer. The seven others with Noah are graciously included in the ark, but we read nothing of their faith. In fact, one is going to distinguish himself by his lack of it. And yet God graciously included him. In the piece of wood. What Peter is saying is that's what baptism is. God graciously includes our children in this covenant by which baptism is signified. But we know baptism doesn't save either. Because you see, you can be in the ark. You can be in the piece of wood. You can be in the church. You can be in the covenant. That doesn't mean you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
us. See, it points us back to that. Baptism is a sign. It points us. It points us. It directs us. But it directs us back to Christ. Because you see, it's not really the cross that saves. It's Christ. Listen to that again. It's not the cross. It's Christ. And only Christ saves. Because he and he alone is the mediator of the new covenant. It is only his blood. It is only his death. It is only by his resurrection. It is only by his ascension that we are saved. My friends, we can talk the cross and talk the cross and talk the cross. They can talk, I was on the boat, I was on the boat, I was on the boat. But only Noah is by faith. In the one who is our covenant keeper, Jesus Christ. Trusting in him means we're safe, safe in the arms of God's sovereign love. And though the storms may beat, the winds may blow, the rains may fall and pelt against us. We're safe in the arms of sovereign love. We ever shall remain. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your reminder of gopher wood. Something perhaps we'd often overlook in this story or in this message that you have given to us in your word. But we pray, Father, now that we've paused to simply look at it and think about it, that, Lord, it will again direct us to Christ. Because we can be saved from a flood, but the only thing that will save us from the judgment is Christ. In him and in him alone. Father, thank you for giving to us faith in Jesus Christ. No hope without you. In his name, God's people say, amen.